This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Callers and Mappers. The 411 on 007. Guns and America. And Maggie Fox. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. We kick off this episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff with a, not a hut, uh, not even really an enclosure, but simply a box. It'll be a quick little segment. We call this Complaint Box. Uh, and please do not uh, look at this as an invitation to complain to us. But uh, we have had a bit of a, a susurrus, a, a murmuring, if you will, about our uh, post-Dragon Meat uh, podcast in which we uh, used the words English and British interchangeably. And apparently, uh, in some quarters, uh, this is... a uh, something of a, a faux pas, as it were, uh, and it was proposed as uh, uh, saying uh, English instead of British. Um, it was posited by uh, some forces in the ether, uh, was akin to uh, referring to a Canadian as an American. And I would start off uh, our response to this complaint by simply indicating that uh, it is not quite analogous, because, of course, uh, Canada and America are have been and will continue to be separate countries, whereas uh, English and British, at least to those of us who are neither English nor British, seem quasi-synonymous. And in fact, uh, I have in the past uh, tried to tease out my English and or British compatriots as to which term uh, they prefer. And usually the response is something on the lines of, uh, oh, um, look over there, there's pudding. Um, so it has been unclear to me up until this day that it was a faux pas to say uh, English instead of British. Uh, wh what do you say, Ken? Well, um, the correct response to any faux pas conducted in uh, the confines of England, and possibly within the confines of Britain, is to never mention it at all and simply hoard it up in your bosom as evidence that those other people uh, weren't quite right. But uh, the English are a subset of the British, whereas the Canadians are good neighbors and beloved friends of the Americans, and I hope that that will settle anything mathematically. Um, I certainly apologize uh, profusely to Malcolm Craig and Gregor Hutton for conflating them with the English, because I would hate for them to think that we have done that. We hold a special, special love for the Scottish uh, role-playing game design scene in our little hearts. Y yes, indeed. Uh, a, a Hutton conflation would be a, a dreadful thing and, and was surely uh, not intended. Right. Uh, and uh, I guess probably a better analogy for uh, America, Canada, would be uh, Ireland, Britain. And uh, the difference there, of course, is that if you mistakenly refer to a, a Canadian as American, the response is, um, uh, well, actually, whereas, of course, uh, someone from Ireland will immediately uh, leap upon you when you even begin to seem as if you're about to suggest that Ireland is in any way geographically proximate to England, uh, let alone a, a subset thereof. And I, I thought it was interesting that it was uh, 
uh, proposed by these ghostly complaining quarters that the use of English was not on, as it were, because that uh, reminds people of, uh, you know, the history of oppression and whatnot. And uh, I would say to that that probably most people around the world, and it is most people, who recall being oppressed, recall being oppressed by the British Empire uh, rather than being oppressed by the English. And um, uh, given that everyone at the panel in question, and indeed a good chunk of the industry at the panel, uh, discussed by the panel in question, are in fact English as well as British, I begin to think that this says more about the complainer than it does about Canon Robin. For indeed, if one runs into uh, someone from those grassy pastoral quarters uh, here in Canada, uh, you would inevitably hear them refer to themselves uh, as English rather than British, uh, and especially uh, once every four years during the World Cup. Uh, suddenly, uh, being English becomes the thing. Yes, up until um, uh, one has to hang one's head in shame because one has been beaten by Brazil or Germany or one of the places that England oppressed. Uh, so, indeed, now that we have uh, made everyone English and or British feel better, uh, we can move on from our complaint box. It's time now to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Troy Holiday asks Ken and Robin, In an early edition of D&D, there were some roles that are gone now, the caller and the mapper. Why was this ever a thing, and why isn't it now? Troy also helpfully suggests that this might be the cartography hut, um, if we are feeling lonely. Uh, indeed, yes. Uh, let us make... Let us answer this question in the cartography hut. And uh, so I guess this was a move during uh, an early refinement of D&D in an attempt to sort of systematize uh, roles and to create uh, more than one role in the group of participants other than just the GM and then this undifferentiated uh, mass of players. And I'm not sure to what extent the motivation of that was simply a systematizing impulse in and of itself, and how much was a solution of an actual problem at the gaming table, because the problem uh, might, I suppose, be that the GM felt, uh, or DM, I guess in this case, bombarded with information and requests from a whole group of people. You know, there's one DM and there's uh, four to six players, ideally, uh, and wanted all of that information channeled through one person who would be the caller. Uh, but of course, what that does is that introduces uh, a layer of uh, almost sort of that classic comedy argument where, you know, the two people at the dinner table aren't speaking and require the intercession of a third party where it's like you, well, you tell her that the barley wasn't in the soup and you tell him that he should go get his own barley in the soup where uh, if you actually followed the whole color business, you would have the players, presumably all the other players, talking amongst each other as to what to do. Then they tell the caller what it is they're going to do. And then the caller tells the GM. So it, I, I would wonder how much actual playtesting went into the uh, idea of the caller, because it just actually seems to add another information bottleneck so that now there's two of them. Well, if I can speak historically to the question, the, the caller appears in the original uh, white box. I mean, it's right there in... Uh, Underworld and Wilderness Adventures in 1974 uh, discussing the caller, and part of the reason that that's there 
is because also in those early palmy days of D&D, the game group uh, was thought of as that it might be not four uh, or five, but ten or twenty or even fifty. The rules uh, say uh, in those early editions that you might have fifty people at the table, and if you've got twenty or fifty people at the table, suddenly the role of the caller becomes you know, really pretty paramount, I would say. Right. Because otherwise, nothing will ever, ever get done. And the thing that I suspect happened to the caller is that you stop playing D&D with 20 people, is what happened. And that is either a, um, uh, I don't know when exactly that, that uh, historical landmark was passed, whether it was whenever it stopped being the, the thing you could only do around Dave Arneson and Gary's table, or whether it happened after that first boom of D&D uh, sort of expanded its way through the universe of uh, early adopters and zero generation gamers in California and the Midwest. But uh, the, the caller, I'm pretty sure, made his last hurrah in the Moldvay set in whenever that was, 81 or whatever. And because I'm pretty sure that he's in the original uh, AD&D uh, player's handbook as well. So that was a, a vestige, in fact, of the uh, the Samas dot era, right? Yeah, and also of the of the um, everyone who knows Dave and Gary getting together on Saturday to play the only game of D anD D that exists in the world era. Um, and so the the mapper, of course, that actually does make more sense in terms of that is a task that one person would perform. Obviously, you are unlikely to have a group where you pass the map around and. Uh, one person draws one room and the next person draws uh, the next room. Although I remember in, in my own early D&D era, there being at least two mappers, either because uh, we suspected the other mapper's competency or we suspected the other mapper of being a uh, half-elf assassin out to kill us all and introducing deliberate errors into the copy of the map that they were drawing for the players. Right, and that would then leak over presumably into what the characters are doing in-game as uh, right. uh, they're probably pulling the map back and forth and disagreeing over it and uh, 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 ripping it up, which introduces sort of a level of fun. Um, now, we have dispatched this question uh, with perhaps too great an efficiency, leaving us uh, more time for this hut. So perhaps we can broaden the discussion out to general questions of the communication flow within a role-playing game and what uh, obviously, these two things have kind of fallen away. Uh, the caller, as we've suggested, because you're not running with groups of uh, 50 people anymore. And the mapper, because the whole idea of the map as something that is described to you and then you draw has kind of uh, fallen away as well in favor of the GM uh, unrolling the battle map or marking, you know, getting out his marker and showing you what it is or pulling down the tiles and plunking it down. And would you attribute that mostly to the focus in uh, D&D's 3 and 4 to uh, crunchy bits that reflect what square you're on? Or is, do you think that's something that fell away uh, before then? I don't know. I'm, I'm tempted by sort of a, a Marxist argument that it that it changed as the means of production changed. And that uh, once uh, the the proletariat of gamers got uh, wealthy enough to afford dungeon tiles and erasable map boards, that the need for the old graph paper uh, uh, educated tradesmen uh, vanished. Uh, not least because I think it would annoy D and D old school guys and Marxists. But I think <laughs> the um, I, I think it probably is more along the lines of 
just the way that your play habits change in general. I suspect the graph paper dungeon is a marker of sort of the early anything is possible type gaming where, you know, you might be, you know, teleported through a door that takes you to the land of the angels or something. And so you've always got to maintain that, that thread. And in our, you know, older era, the, once you become a a college student, you've played enough uh, games that you're, simultaneously more comfortable with less options and less comfortable with having to sort of um, uh, define everything uh, on, on your end of the stick. I, I, I just think it, it, it's more likely to be a generational shift. I don't know um, if today's kids, of course, even know what graph paper is, because I'm sure they have, you know, iPad graph paper or something that does a million times better job than we were ever able to do. But and I don't know to what extent, you know, the kids today are playing good old um, uh, Tomb of Horrors and uh, 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 Castle Ravenloft and all the old, you know, climb up, climb down, here's a 10-foot corridor, here's a secret door type D&D that was such great fun. I mean, I know that the OSR is still playing that, but they're probably playing it uh, with uh, historically uh, accurate graph paper as well. <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a horde of 1977 graph paper in a uh, bunker deep under Minneapolis that they periodically have to raid. Uh, and which, oddly enough, is guarded by uh, first edition kobolds. Yes, which uh, is the only reason that uh, the graph paper gets out at all, I guess. Yep, exactly. If they were guarded by better monsters, it would be a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. So, I guess the old school argument would be that you have more of a sense of wonder, more of a sense of imaginative engagement if you are making a crude representation of something that you, in turn, are intensely visualizing, where the uh, the cruder the map, the more you have to imagine the environment you're in. Whereas if you have gorgeously produced dungeon tiles, you are not imagining the environment. You are uh, looking at a picture of the environment. Uh, just as if all you had for a miniature was the top hat from uh, a Mono- Monopoly game, you have to imagine uh, your dwarven warrior. Whereas if you have a beautifully produced uh painted uh, plastic dwarven warrior miniature, you stop imagining him and instead you see that uh, representation of him. So do you buy into that argument other than as a sort of a kids today nostalgia thing where indeed our approach to media basically defines uh, our imaginative limits and it's no uh, different to have the old experience where you're picturing stuff in your head and the new experience where you're seeing really sophisticated renderings of things? I think, I think there may be something to that. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd go in with these kids today. Uh, don't know how to imagine things because if, you know, I, whenever I see these kids today, they seem awfully imaginative. Uh, uh, and they certainly seem to still be having fun doing, uh, nerd stuff. Uh, I, th- I think another part of it might be the, the shift in the way D&D is played away from sort of adversaries over a common board, where the GM's job is to stock the dungeon with monsters and traps and try to kill you, but try to kill you fair. Where, and then the player's job is to move through the, D- the DM's dungeon and loot it to the bare walls of everything but uh, blue tack and um, uh, kobold feet. And, but to, but the, both sides know that they're playing on sort of defined... Uh, battle space or defined game space, which I think is probably a, a a habit of mind and a habit of intellect that comes down from its old wargaming roots. When you know, you know, uh, uh, Dave Arneson may be uh, tricking you with with this uh, description and or the with a mimic that looks like a treasure chest, 
but he's not lying about the fact that the room is 10 by 10 any more than you'd lie about whether or not the hill was there in a Napoleonic set. And I think that that sort of, you know, um, uh, fair play over the graph paper of Eaton type approach that the miniatures gaming and the wargaming space sort of encourages, I think that has leached out of D&D more than any ability of kids to have fun now uh, by thinking about the Monopoly top hat and uh, pretending that it's an orc or something. And, and going back to the collar and the idea of kids today, when I was one of those kids today, uh, we briefly flirted with the use of a collar. And what that did was that broke a sort of a churlish adversarial habit, which I'm not sure it was certainly part of the culture at that time, and I'm not sure to what extent it was part of the text, but there was a bit of, if you say something happens, it happens and there's no take backs. Mm -hmm. So what you would do as DM is you would hose your friends for joking around or for making a move without stopping and checking what the environment was and doing things that their characters would never do given the right. information that they have. Yeah. And so oh, you would... touch the chest, the giant metal jaws around the chest close and cut you in half. Right. And then, stuff. and then other players would get upset. Why did you touch the chest? We should have consulted on that. And so that sort of did, uh, there was a sort of a secondary benefit from that is that it trained you out of that by making it very clear what everybody was trying to propose happening versus what was just sort of side talk or what was one player getting ahead of everybody else when logically as a, as a character, they wouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I found um, in oddly enough in call of Cthulhu, uh, I ran a, a, a fairly long running CFC game and the players sort of amongst themselves evolved a caller because they realized that the way that, you know, call of Cthulhu combat is, is very dangerous and does not take a great amount of time, especially if you do it as uh, badly as the characters which tended to. And so they found, or they decided that having one player sort of as tactical commander in combat vastly increased their chances of staying alive because he was able to sort of see the whole tactical picture and was responsible for seeing the whole tactical picture. And it was not so much that, um, uh, you know, I wouldn't hose them because it was Call of Cthulhu, of course. The universe was hosing them. I was just rolling the dice for it. Uh, but that they were able to, I think, have more confidence and feel like they, they had a better handle on how the how the combat and uh, w would go. And I think that that was an interesting evolution, and I've tried it every now and again in, in other games where if it would make logical sense within the fiction to say, you know, if you're all playing, you know, uh, uh, starship officers, one of you is the captain, so what he says is going to be what goes unless. And, and that kind of thing... I think that can work as well, especially, as I say, in tactical situations where uh, speed of decision-making both promotes party survival and it also promotes uh, staying immersed in the combat or in the, in, the, in the crisis space, as opposed to a lot of bickering and arguing about whether or not I did or did so have my phaser out. One uh, perhaps modern way to incorporate the idea of a caller if you're having information flow issues at the table although I think they tend to sort themselves out these days, but you could sort of appoint a different caller situationally so that if, uh, you know, here's the tactical point man, you're the one who's in charge of being the information deliverer to the GM. If it's a combat situation, uh, you're the face guy, so that if you're going to uh, interrogate somebody, you're the one who's in charge of saying what questions that the other players are proposing actually get asked of the witness and, you know, divide it that way so that you're not creating basically a lieutenant, someone who either, depending on how you want to look at it, either 
has a bigger burden of labor placed on them or gets too big a share of the power pie, uh, you could possibly divide that up, although I'm not sure if you'd... It, it would be an interesting exercise, actually, to ask each player in a group, you know, what situation are you the caller for? Even if you don't do it, that could then sort of sharpen what sort of roles all of the characters play. And you may discover by that process that a couple of the characters have sort of amorphous uh, uh, roles or perhaps aren't getting scenes designed for their capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that can happen. Um, again, uh, I'm, uh, I was thinking of uh, a game like uh, Ars Magica, which has very strong social ranks. And so you always know who the caller is because it's the guy who's playing the wizard this time. Uh, well, I think we've uh, extended the answer to that question sufficiently and can now uh, close up the cartography hut and uh, stop answering questions and move on to our next segment. this history hut. So we will be discussing this uh, among the uh, trophies of history that uh, Ken has assembled from his time machine. Might turn into a politics that we'll see. So it was not my intention to talk about Wayne Lapierre on this show, but Wayne Lapierre decided to start talking about games. Uh, so I guess uh, it is time to look for some historical solace and perspective on the uh, terrible, uh, catastrophic events of the uh, Sandy Hook uh, school shootings. It's been about a month since then, and we've had enough time to sort of digest the horror of that and to seek uh, some sort of, uh, certainly there's no solace to be had in the story, but perhaps there's a sense of perspective or understanding to be found. And I guess we can start with the more politics hut uh, reaction of the NRA to the resurgence of the gun control movement that has resulted from that a terrible event. Uh, it was interesting to see uh, that press conference and see the way that he uh, was looking for somebody else to throw under the bus and uh, proposed a lot of other things that uh, would seem at odds with the general conservative disposition of that organization. For example, establishing a nationwide database of everybody with a mental illness um, and, of course, bringing up that old saw uh, violent uh, movies and games as uh, a bigger contributing factor to violence than the uh, weaponry that a uh, person might bring to a mass killing. And so it was interesting, for example, that he was able to cite as examples of violent movies only very two very old films, both of whom are satires of the right, uh, and that would be uh, Natural Born Killers and I'm blank, oh, American Psycho. Um, because, of course, people who like guns generally tend to like action movies with guns in them. So he was unable to uh, mention the films of Bruce Willis or Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, Chuck Norris, people who would uh, culturally be seen as uh, in the sphere of his members of his organization. Well, I mean, um, I think that uh, part of what uh, Wayne uh, Lapierre was doing at that press conference was attempting a sort of reductio ad absurdum, uh, sort of a sauce for the goose 
type deal where if you don't care about the Second Amendment, then let's suggest abolishing the first instead. And uh, that, since that is, is, you know, prima facie ridiculous, that perhaps can cast into perspective some of the discussion about abolishing the Second Amendment. Uh, I'm not sure that he did it particularly artfully, but then there are reasons uh, that I'm not in charge of the NRA. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can we put you in charge of the NRA, uh, Ken? Would you take that job? Well, you know, it depends on if it, you know, how it pays and how much um, uh, role-playing game design there is. And, I mean, they, can, they, can, they know my address. They can send me a proposal. But I think another part of the, the problem may be that Wayne Lapierre just doesn't watch a lot of movies. Uh, if The fact that he can only think of two violent movies made by left-wingers in the last uh, 35 years may just mean that he doesn't get to come into Cinema Hut with us, as opposed to that he's deliberately trying to let Bruce Willis off the hook. Uh, his, his list of video games seemed uh, similarly uh, pulled at the last minute from the uh, bottom drawer of somebody's uh, old report. Right, or, uh, yes, the the thing that he remembered from the last time we were worried about video games. Right. He may have just uh, copied and uh, pasted from the last time he had to do this press conference. Uh, because, again, there'll be a lot of members of the NRA who enjoy video games that prominently feature guns. Mm-hmm. And at the risk of preaching to the choir, I'm sure there's no one listening to this podcast who believes that uh, games with violence in them are a serious contributing factor to real-life violence. But, of course, we can easily dispense with that by... Uh, looking at the great control experiment of the rest of the industrialized world, which consumes uh, the same uh, video games and violent movies uh, as uh, America does, but does not have America's off-the-charts level of uh, violence. So either there's some other cause for that, uh, or it's simply that uh, Americans can't watch American-produced uh, movies and video games without being influenced in that way, which I think is uh, possible, but highly unlikely. So how do we go back in history and uh, come to terms with the very different relationship between the guns and the populace uh, that you uh, have in America as opposed to the uh, relationship you see in other Western industrialized uh, countries, including Canada, which has a at the same time, fairly strict controls on handguns, but a high level of gun ownership, but uh, like other industrialized com- countries, does not come anywhere near the uh, level of uh, gun violence or indeed just violence violence as uh, America does. Yeah, I think that um, I guess the way you come to terms with it is the same you come to terms with the fact that, you know, the British people eat brown sauce. People are different people each time. And, you know, national culture does mean something. The reason that, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, there, there's more uh, suicide in Japan doesn't mean that, uh, you know, there's some sort of connection between living in dense packed uh, urban areas and suicide. The connection means that the Japanese don't have the cultural prohibitions against suicide, by and large, that uh, uh, Christendom descended nations do. So it's just a matter of a different natural, national culture. Our national culture happens to be one that uh, has been intimately tied in with the gun uh, almost literally since the founding, uh, obviously, and given the level of violence that has been needed in early America to sort of create and extend America, and then the amount of violence that is that was needed right there in the middle of when we were creating our national culture to keep America a national culture, I, I think that uh, you can you can sort of, you know, if you're, if you're looking for root causes, Americans were... America was basically settled by people who wanted to bring their guns somewhere and um, uh, be left alone. And that is, 
in, you know, by and large, the same people who still have guns now. Right. And it's a country that was founded with guns, uh, a country that was expanded with guns. Uh, and if you want to take a mordant uh, novelistic view of it, as I am uh, perhaps prone to do, that it is a uh, country that uh, has a uh, sort of a pervading uh, debt of violence hanging over it. And uh, violence is part of the uh, background radiation that certainly if you uh, look at uh, the phenomenon of the spree killer, uh, certainly we've had spree killers in uh, other countries. It seems to be a fairly widespread phenomenon, but we've seen a uh, its sort of modern origin begins in America with Charles Whitman in 1966. And uh, you were seeing, for whatever reason, a an, an uptick uh, in people adopting that pattern. But still, it's a, a number of people that is statistically very low, but that uh, we register emotionally as incredibly significant that, you know, I felt a profound sense of loss and mourning from this event that happened in another country, uh, seeing it uh, covered in the news. And uh, I'm sure uh, most of our uh, listeners felt that uh, sense of uh, profound hurt. And you feel that hurt uh, in the case of a uh, violent crime, a murder in a way that uh, is intensified. If you were to hear a story of a bus crash in which the same number of people who are the same ages were uh, killed, you would still be horrified, but it would sort of disappear from your memory fairly quickly because it's not an instance of human agency and that we, I think, are are primally trained from our uh, earliest days as, uh, as hominids to react more strongly to uh, attacks from within, to, to murder rather than to uh, death by catastrophe. And the question really is, is given uh, this cultural predilection that you re refer to, and also the fact that people, uh, there's a lot of people who, who want to, for whatever reason, uh, own these very, very powerful weapons. The question, uh, which is, I guess, as a Canadian, is one that I do not ha have to answer for myself, because we have a different answer here, is, is, is there any point or reason to try and uh, prevent these things by making guns more difficult to obtain? Well, I mean, living as I do in the murder capital of America, where guns are virtually impossible to obtain, and uh, the police seem unwilling to follow my theory that since the only people in Chicago who can legitimately carry uh, handguns are aldermen, that we must obviously be faced with a vast alderman-driven crime wave, uh, I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about control groups, Chicago demonstrates fairly convincingly that... Uh, uh, restricting legal access to uh, handguns doesn't do it either, in America at least. Uh, certainly, you know, re you know, restricting the number of guns, you know, mathematically cuts down on gun crime in a place like, say, you know, Scotland. But that's not the same thing as, uh, you know, doing it in a country where there are more guns than there are people, like in America. Right. You can't have a local solution to that problem. You have to. Have well, you, a... yeah, I, I, I would argue that. Um, uh, you know, right now you couldn't have a national solution to the problem unless you wanted to have, you know, literally violating every other civil right in the name of stopping, you know, one horrific uh, spree killing uh, every uh, couple of years. And, you know, we're certainly not willing to violate every other civil right to stop, you know, uh, a, a terrorist attack or whatever. Although, you know, some days it's a 
closer odds than others. But the, uh, you know, the, the it, it simply, it's, it's to begin with, in addition to being impractical, uh, it's also, uh, it's uh, demonstrable that uh, the, the solution proposed doesn't work in America. It would be interesting, at least as a thought experiment that might form a story rather than something that will actually happen, is the fact that uh, ammo has a shelf life so that the uh, there have been people proposing uh, restrictions on ammo as a practical substitute uh, for uh, restrictions on the existing giant stockpile of weapons. Now, I want to run a... Uh, historical thesis by you, uh, and it's not my thesis, so uh, we will uh, see if you agree with it. The historian Akil Reed uh, traces the shift from uh, the Second Amendment being seen as a group defense against possible invasion, the militia idea, to the personal weapon uh, kept for self-defense to the Reconstruction. And he uh, looks at that as the time when uh, the North uh, looked at the uh, re- now freed black population of the uh, Reconstruction era, saw that they were going to be in trouble, and basically said, well, everybody has a right to self-defense in a gun. We got to get going. But here, look at this uh, Second Amendment. Uh, this is how you can defend yourself by that old American value of gun ownership in the home. Now, obviously, that didn't turn into anything that didn't allow them to defend themselves. So do you buy that as a cause or even a correlation to the shift in understanding of what the Second Amendment was supposed to allow people to do? I think that in terms of um, the Second Amendment's original intent and how it was seen at the time, I think, uh, you know, I'm no uh, Anton Scalia, and he's done a great deal more research into it than I have, and he seems to believe that uh, the framers were capable of keeping more than one purpose for a gun in their heads and believed in a gun as both an individual weapon and as an expression of militia membership. And so, I'm first of all, I guess I'd question whether or not that shift existed at all. But certainly, uh, Reed is correct that the first period of gun control legislation in America was passed by uh, post-Reconstruction white governments in the South to control the disturbing tendency of black folk to own guns and use them on the occasional night rider or Klansman who came by. And uh, again, when I say that if you want to have an effective program of gun control, you need to violate everyone involved civil rights. If we're talking about case studies, the Jim Crow South is an excellent case study for the efficacy of that approach. Um, I think that uh, certainly the ownership by black uh, household, uh, uh, household keepers of private firearms was probably celebrated to a degree in the North as uh, an aspect of uh, abolitionist triumphalism and uh, you're going to get it now, uh, Johnny Reb, that we have forgotten because we have made a decision as a country not to make fun of the South for losing every time, uh, which, you know, I, you know, whatever. We have plenty of national punchlines. I guess we don't need that one anymore. But I suspect that if Akil Reed has gone back and found uh, specific peons to individual gun ownership that he ties to Reconstruction, that his historical research is probably pretty sound, but he obviously has the causal cart uh, wrong, and uh, he's wrong in the question of a shift as opposed to a re-emphasis. So, and of course, as, a, as an un-American, the idea that gun ownership is a civil right uh, is, profa- is crazy alien talk. Um, and so it's almost as though you were descended from people who didn't want to be Americans. Exactly. Or um, and so uh, is there an, in an alternate universe 
where gun ownership is not seen as a as a civil right uh, in America, does America have the same level of violence? Do those does the one uh, does the behavior flow from the ideology? Well, I think that uh, you start looking at violence and you start noticing, you know, people who uh, kill each other with hammers and knives and baseball bats and clubs and uh, whatnot, and that go to huge lengths to uh, create the conditions in which a gun spree could happen, like Anders Breivik did in Norway, you know, who spent, you know, some ungodly number of years specifically working within the very onerous uh, gun control regime of uh, Norway so that he could, in fact, have a good old American-style kill spree. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to make those guys work harder. No, I don't think that it is, but I think that the argument being that if you have a population that is predisposed to uh, being more violent than Norway's, that you're still going to see an awful lot of uh, of uh, machete killings or something. And and I think that Americans' predisposition to violence does not depend on Americans' predisposition to own guns. Right. But are all of the killings, is all of the violence in America with knives and guns and uh, all of the various uh, weapons that are used? Because, you know, the main motivation for a violence uh, uh, anywhere, but especially in America, is the momentary alleviation of annoyance. Um, <laughs> would that entire spectrum of violence, no matter what the weapon be lower in a culture that did not privilege weapons ownership and as, and the, as a civil right. I I don't I don't know that you would necessarily uh, be able to make that argument. I think that um uh, it, it 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 would be such a profound reshaping of the American nature that you would have run the risk of reshaping the same thing that makes us more likely to kill each other in bar fights. Um so I think that you know the I think that if you look at, uh, say, Latin America, where they have a, a, a rate of gun violence that is vastly higher than ours and have uh, one degree or another of, of uh, god-awful social problems, that you can maybe start looking at a broader correlation than whether or not you have a uh, Scalian understanding of private weapons ownership as the driving force. I, I, again, I don't know. I suspect Americans would be more violent because we're descended... Quakers aside, from a whole bunch of very violent people who actually saw smashing someone's head through something as a perfectly legitimate means of reason debate. So it's an irreducible chicken and egg situation. And uh, is there anything for uh, for us to do except to uh, harden our hearts against these uh, horrific explosions of violence? Well, I, I don't think hardening your heart is ever the solution. Obviously, you would be you know a psychopath if this sort of thing happened and you said. Well, there you go. That's the uptick in the statistics for the 20-teens. Now we move on. Um, every one of these cases, uh, every one of every kind of case of, of, of sort of public violence uh, done by humans, as you say, should appeal to us on a fundamental biological level as well as, you know, uh, outrage our souls that the thing happens at all. But I think that trying to draw public policy from a terrible tragedy is generally not the way to draw good public policy or respond effectively to a terrible tragedy. Um, now, of course, another mass murder uh, changed hugely the public policy, not only of America, uh, but of uh, the uh, most of the world. Uh, and that, of course, is the, the, mur the mass murders committed on 9-11. Uh, that being a an act of politics instead of, uh, uh, and, you know, only covertly an act of psychopathy. Isn't that an example of uh, of uh, public policy being uh, driven by uh, 
a rare act of violence? Yeah, I mean, you could say the same thing about declaring war on Japan, but... Uh, and again, I think if you look at the public policies that were enacted in the immediate wake of 9-11, I think that looking back on them now, we can say, you know, maybe the TSA was not such a terrific idea, and it doesn't seem to have been responding uh, immediately to a real threat, and it may have, in fact, endangered a number of freedoms that we did not perhaps value highly enough before uh, rushing into that. So I think that the 9-11 case is an excellent argument against uh, driving your policy by the natural human response to mourn uh, a, a tragic murder or a huge pile of tragic murders, as is the case in uh, New York in uh, 2001. Uh, well, I guess... Uh to whatever extent uh, we have achieved a perspective, uh, we have achieved it. So uh, uh, let us move on. The hurdy-gurdy music and the smell of popcorn tells us that it is time to throw wide the maroon curtain of the cinema hut. And in this particular case, I believe that, uh, Robin, you have been jumping up and down in your seat uh, through the previews, uh, the junior mints rattling in your hand as you wait for me to get to my seat across the aisle from you so that you can give a good old-fashioned Canadian uh, violent outburst at uh, Skyfall. So why don't you... Open us up. Yes, and, and while I was watching Skyfall, I was not only shaking in my sheep, but literally shaking my fist at the screen in uh, frustration that this uh, vaunted franchise and uh, previously, uh, or at least once, uh, inviolate example of the iconic hero had been uh, so sullied. And I don't know, I may, I may have an outburst or two that may cause us to have to uh, put an explicit tag on this episode, but we'll, uh, we'll see if I can contain myself. So uh, I uh, kind of like Daniel Craig and hope that one day he will get to play James Bond because uh, he is, certainly was not playing uh, James Bond in uh, Casino Royale. He was playing some uh, weird mopey guy with a character arc or something like that. And uh, I gave Quantum of Solace a miss. And as far as I know, uh, I've heard no one gainsay me on that judgment, but uh, because Paul Haggis was no longer involved uh, in this <laughs> new one, I I had a flutter of hope. Uh, that it, was not immediately quenched by the words John Logan. Um, well, it was Sam Mendes, I think, that I really should have been looking out for. <laughs> um, although, you know, now I, retrospectively, I'm uh, looking at the filmography of uh, John Logan with a, a mordant eye. Um, and, uh, you know, there was that moment in the trailer where he jumps on the exploding chain, uh, train and adjusts his uh, his cufflink. There was the Danny Boyle-directed uh, segment at the Olympics, and I think that those things, uh, plus my eternal creative optimism, combined to create a set of expectations that I, I should have known would be dashed, but had no idea would be so completely and utterly dashed. Uh, I have to think of... I can't think of a, f a f franchise that has had a film that so completely not only misses the point of the franchise, but hates the franchise that it expands upon uh, as, as Skyfall. So speaking as someone who never saw Star Trek Generations, apparently. Yeah, Star Trek Generations. Well, the question of that is, you know, just how... That may have merely been maladroit 
uh, neglect. Well, I think there was genuine hatred of Star Trek going on there. Uh, there might well have been. And also the first Mission Impossible uh, uh, movie is, of course... And the second, also terrible and also hateful. Terrible, but did not go to, out of its way to uh, uh, micturate on the franchise the way that the first one did. True. Um, so... Am I am I wrong, Ken? Am I uh, missing some uh, Bondian fidelity here? I, I feel like that I am the poor guy who got to be public defender for uh, someone that he knows is guilty uh, in this particular uh, throwdown. So, so you are me in our future Woodrow Wilson segment. I am very possibly yes. I am. I am. I am to Sam Mendez as you are to Woodrow Wilson. Um, I have. I have never had anything but contempt for Sam Mendez. I don't think I've seen two uh, cells of his together that I uh, liked as uh, filmic storytelling. Well, they would have to constitute filmic storytelling in order for you to like them. In, in, in the depths of your of your outrage, you did notice that uh, Roger Deakins filmed himself a very pretty James Bond movie, or at least a very pretty movie. Um, uh, oh, yes. With this a James this Bond movie soundtrack. has a pretty mouth. There's no question right. about that. Right. Um, I, I, I think that I uh, I was forewarned by having seen uh, uh, Quantum of Solace by knowing what they thought they were doing, and uh, the the notion being that they're spending an entire trilogy of James Bond movies to reintroduce James Bond to us because of idiocy, uh, and and so I was sort of willing to cut them a break over the larger uh, James Bond construction arc, and in my mind the particular sin of this movie that is exclusive to it as opposed to uh, the ongoing uh, uh, failure to understand their own character that they've been doing for the last three of them is the horrific treatment of uh, Judy Dench's M that is dealt out. And if I, I were not involved in defending them in a case of um, uh, character assassination against Bond, I would certainly be prosecuting them for wife-beating in the case of their treatment of Judy Dench's M, which has got to be I mean, you thought that her um, uh, being kidnapped in uh, The World is Not Enough was, was bad. Everything in this movie puts that to shame. And the fact that she's such a, a terrific actress and that the British, you know, thespian code prevents you from, you know, tearing the head mic out of your costume and walking off set, setting fire to everything around you is the only thing that must have kept her from doing that. Well, first of all, Ken, merely for the, the sake of form, you, you are not obligated to defend this film. We can team up. With our flamethrowers, uh, as it were. Engage in a savage kicking. Um, and, uh, well, first of all, let's just put the, the spoil alert on the rest of this segment, because, of course, the uh, mention of Judy Dench brings us to uh, one of the central crimes of the film, which is, is a film in which James Bond loses and the villain wins. Yes. Uh, the motivation <laughs> of the villain is to uh, kill M and then commit suicide, which, guess what? He does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even... Uh, in Her Majesty's Secret Service, where uh, Bond's wife is assassinated at the end, that is just a uh, gratuitous bummer tack-on to a film in which Bond wins. Yeah, it's it's a churlish slap by Smirsh. It's not a, a you know, it, it, it wasn't like they sent a, a supervillain whose whole, ro you know, uh, modus operandi and reason for uh, going out there was to kill Tracy. Um, and, and so from beginning to end, the question, you know, is this Bond... Um, well, Let's pick up the the point that this is supposedly uh, a film that reintroduces Bond as the taking a trilogy of films to do it. I mean, the next thing you know, they're going to take a trilogy of films to tell the story of The Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> you can read The Hobbit in an afternoon. That's nonsense. Yeah. But 
this is not only a supposed completion of his origin work, but it's an I'm getting too old for this shit movie. Uh, which is a ridiculous combination of, of elements in which they uh, assert a series of facts about Bond, which has never previously been in evidence. Uh, uh, it's, he's already physically breaking down. Well, you know, good on that for your new Bond. You've already worn mm -hmm. him out. Um, I guess they figure there's going to be a tough contract negotiation coming up. Um, they, there's that ridiculous... Uh, psych evaluation scene in which they suddenly accuse him of being an alcoholic. And uh, we've uh, known Bond all along as a, a man who is, uh, has distinctive, precise tastes about his, uh, his martini. But we've always seen him as a man who's able to handle his liquor. We've never had any indication that he's a, an alcoholic. Uh, we're presented with a Bond who supposedly has a problem with authority when the uh, classic Bond's problem with authority uh, generally consists of trading quips with M and then sort of being trumped. M is traditionally the only uh, character who can trump Bond, and that Bond is a uh, expression of official power. He's not a a rebel by any means. And, and again, I mean, you know, I'm happy to see people you know become Americans, but I, I I do ask them to go through the paperwork. the The notion of turning James Bond into yet another you know, a pathetic action hero on the mold of, you know, everyone else who's, um, uh, you know, a maverick who doesn't play by the rules until they shot his dog. He's not a maverick cop. It's just terrible. Uh, James Bond is not a maverick cop. James Bond is an attack dog. And what is delightful about James Bond as an attack dog is that he is sent out to attack the enemies of Britain, which, speaking of our, of our complaint box, was something that went on my teeth like tinfoil when, uh, in the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the word association game, and they ask him uh, country or whatever it is, and he says uh, England. It, it, that's just ridiculous. James Bond, as the film knew at one point, because they sent him back to his home in Scotland, James Bond is half Scottish, half French. He hasn't a drop of English blood in him. What James Bond is, is British. James Bond is literally the British Empire. James Bond would no, long, would, would no more say England than he would say Australia. Right, and he is not a mope. Uh, he, if anything, is uh, a... Uh, psychopath, but he's he's our psychopath, or at least yeah. Britain's psychopath. So at the beginning of the uh, of the film, a if Bond had actually been in this film, and during the teaser sequence, Bond had been accidentally shot uh, by an agent uh, commanded to uh, take a shot in what was a perfectly reasonable tactical situation for which Bond, of all people, would understand the risk. Actual Bond would not then go. Uh, on a uh, hissy fit vacation and uh, let him go un himself go unshaved. He might indeed engage in a drinking game involving a scorpion, but that's about it. And so just the, be the whole thing that he has this resentful sulk on because he was shot in that situation is perhaps in a, a film full of completely unbondian moments, perhaps the most unbondian of all. The most unbondiest. Yeah, and the and the real problem is because I, I suspect, and I don't know the the the, the way in which the script the script was was delivered. I don't know if there was, you know, there the, there was three credited uh, writers, which usually is the sign there was about six or seven who actually turned in scripts at one time or another. So I don't know the the full story of this. I don't know if there was, you know, two decent Bond scripts with two killer scenes that got remixed into this movie to become the fairly. Uh, creepy and effective uh, fight 
uh, in the Macau casino. I mean, the bit with the finding the, the casino chip as payment for the assassination, going to Macau, redeeming the chip for no reason, that was perfect Bond. It's like, for one brief moment, he walks into a casino in Macau, uh, a, a colonial holdover, and is is magically re-James Bondified for the length of one sequence. Right. was pretty great. But then when he's captured, he's supposed to leverage the capture, not just let the girl die and be humiliated. That's Yeah, the, the, yeah girls dying in, um, uh, in Bond movies doesn't happen... Uh, while Bond is there to say anything about it, and it certainly doesn't happen that he's counting on it so that he can have an excuse to then, a, a distraction to shoot everyone else with the gun he could have taken away from his armed guard at any time. It's it, it's just, um, uh, yeah, that, that sequence, in addition to being a colossal waste of Battleship Island, was a colossal waste of what was turning out to be a pretty great Bond girl. Yes, and, and that's an example of uh, the Klingons on, on the ship syndrome, where in uh, Star Trek Three. Suddenly, having Klingons on your ship is a problem that Kirk can only solve by crashing the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it has been well established that that is in the realm of problems that uh, Kirk uh, deals with, uh, just a Wednesday, basically. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, it was never set up as there being some particular reason why this was a bigger emergency than all of the other twelve times he's had uh, Klingons on the on the ship before, and so that the uh, downgrading of him to an incompetent boob so he can become supposedly a competent boob at the end. And uh, and then there's the whole ridiculousness of the the only way to save M from this threat is to take her to an undefended place that the bad guy can easily find. I mean, yes. the, the, the idiot plotting in this is at least on a par with the idiot plotting in Prometheus. And and he and he literally has to tell uh, New Q, um, uh, uh, you know, make sure that this plot is sufficiently idiotic that even Javier Bardem can follow it. Uh, th- I mean, th- they have a whole. It's not just a, a hang a lantern on it. They they put a Klieg light on the idiocy of that idiot plot uh, during during that sequence. Um, it, it it was just appalling. The whole movie. Uh, well, for me, um, I, I I had to agree with uh, Matt Colville that. The only way to cast Silva correctly was to cast Pierce Brosnan to play him. Uh, given that they've done that exact same story before in GoldenEye better, uh, the only way to do it really better is to have, honest to God, James Bond as the old, as the old, old James Bond that new old James Bond has to stop. Uh, then you also change everything else about the character, too. But start with casting him well, and then move on. And and whatever hope I had for a, a future James Bond franchise that I would like to see, of course, has been, uh, first of all, the fact this has made umpty zillion dollars. Uh, so they've been re- rewarded for their disregard for the franchise. And also the fact that Danny Boyle, who I think, uh, even from that little clip he did during the Olympics, seemed to get Bond, uh, has said that he would never work on something with that budget. Uh, so... Uh, I guess I'm just going to have to uh, learn not to go see uh, movies with the word James Bond on them on the grounds that they will not have James Bond in them. Well, I will I will um, uh, see them anyway, because that is my way. I saw Octopussy in the theater, for God's sake, so I'm I'm clearly a basket case. I will let you be my ablative armor in this aesthetic battle. But I will be your I will be your 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 Felix Leiter in this uh, and, and come back and say, James, it looks pretty good here. Uh, should such a magic uh, ever occur, and in the uh, existential threats hanging over us like a sword of Damocles, 
the absence of Danny Boyle is nothing to the presence of John Logan, who has been signed for, I think, the next three movies. Um, well, I, I have a number of movies to avoid then. And, and, until he casts James Bond as a wisecracking gecko uh, who meets the ghost of Clint Eastwood in a desert, <laughs> he is not going to be playing to his John Logan strengths since he's already told the, um, uh, uh, the only action movie he apparently ever was able to tell in Gladiator. Well, if you uh, lose an arm and then come back as an African-American and tell me that Bond movies are good again, I will, I will know to look at them. Okay. So finally, we uh, come to Consulting Occultist. Uh, and uh, this time, uh, I know a little bit more about the uh, subject than I often do, because uh, I recently uh, read a book called The Reluctant Spiritualist, uh, Nancy Rubin Stewart, uh, which is uh, tells the life story of the sort of accidental founder of the spiritualist uh, movement, uh, this being uh, Margaret Fox, who was uh, sort of the uh, fulcrum of the Fox sisters, uh, who uh, created uh, this extremely influential uh, movement in, first of all, the 19th century America, and second of all, in occultism, uh, out of a prank. Um, and uh, uh, when she was 16 uh, in 1848 in uh, upstate New York, which was a, a hotbed of occult and uh, theological uh, thought, at the time, perhaps you could uh, give a bit of a background on uh, the burned over district and the the context in which this happened. Yeah, the burned over district is the um, is 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 the upstate New York in the immediate wake of the Erie Canal. As suddenly uh, settlers are are flooding into good times and open farmland in a in a, in a more constrained area than the entire American West. And so if you took every crazy preacher and every ranting madman and every Indian shaman and every crazy uh, patent uh, uh, medicine salesman and you packed them all into upstate New York, you'd have the burned-over area. And it was called the burned-over area because there were so many revival campfires, they said, that the whole uh, stretch of the state had been burned over. And among the other world religions to come out of uh, upstate New York in that era, in addition to spiritualism, which has become a world religion uh, in in Brazil, in in many other countries, that you know, tens of millions of of, uh, of devout spiritualist believers of one or another denomination was, of course, Mormonism, which uh, Joseph Smith uh, found his uh, golden tablets and his rose-colored glasses and his magic hat all up there in upstate New York, just down the road from Rochester. So the burned-over area is 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 it, it's a phenomenally it's one of those things like, um, you know, the, the Italian Renaissance is basically, uh, uh, w w you know, blown up out of a few cities, roughly the same size and population of, of Rochester and Utica uh, up there in the burned over area. And, in and instead of producing great artistic masterpieces, we produced, we produced you know, great uh, spiritual masterpieces in, in that way, in, in the sense of, of moving people to great action. Uh, without uh, the interposition of reason, it was a great meme factory. Yeah, uh, and uh, and sometimes uh, this is an idea that you might stick in your gaming about this area. That the thought was that there was a lost Indian tribe whose spirit sort of permeated uh, the area and uh, uh, inspired 
all of the uh, supernatural doings and revelations that, uh, that followed. Uh, so uh, Kate and, and Leah Fox were brought up uh, in this place at this time, this sort of great spiritual hothouse, the idea that uh, uh, new manifestations of the unreal could uh, burst out from you at any time. You could find a golden tablet under a rock, or you could uh, uh, have a great revelation about the truth of the universe. But they were uh, basically uh, playing a prank because they learned somehow, and this is one of the weirdest aspects of the story, to produce uh, rapping sounds that sounded as if they were uh, extremely loud and potent and no one could trace the origin of them, apparently from manipulating the joints of their toes. Um, and uh, one of the great questions I have coming out of this story is, is there, uh, has anyone been able to reproduce this effect? Because it seems utterly bizarre, but she uh, learned this, uh, taught it to uh, her younger sister, Kate, and later taught it to her much older, much more entrepreneurial sister, Leah, and uh, produced these wrappings, which they uh, claimed as bored young teenagers in this area, to be uh, communications from the spirit world. And around that, uh, a great spiritualist uh, movement grew. Other people uh, also uh, very quickly started to communicate with spirits. Uh, her sister Leah created a uh, cosmology and a theology to explain uh, what the uh, other realm was that the spirits were in, and it sort of fit into the utopian uh, progressive yearnings of the era. And so before they knew it, uh, Kate and Leah were uh, superstars. But this is the part where the story becomes somewhat sad because Maggie Fox is maybe not our favorite most fun spiritualists, that would be Victoria Woodhull, I think, for both of us. Mm -hmm. We might talk about Absolutely. her in a later segment, because Victoria Woodhull, uh, who went on to become a great, uh, weird uh, suffragist advocate that the other suffragists were not always entirely comfortable with, uh, she started out circus. She was a, uh, a traveling performer with a medicine show, but Kate and Leah were just kids who wound up being locked into this lie uh, when it became uh, profitable and when it a movement coalesced around them. And her later life was one of a, a lot of uh, sad uh, reversals. She fell uh, in love with a an Arctic explorer named Elisha Kent Kane, um, who was uh, uh, extremely ardent for her, but at the same time wanted her to turn her back on, uh, on spiritualism. And uh, he had the bad grace to uh, call a mock marriage ceremony uh, without... Uh, any officialdom or certainly any members of his rich, disapproving family present and declared uh, himself uh, married uh, to Maggie. Uh, now, we don't know for sure what happened after that, but uh, generally uh, anyone with a knowledge of uh, male behavior will assume that uh, he had uh, something specific in mind uh, as a reason for this ruse. And uh, then he, who is both an Arctic explorer and a sickly man suffering from rheumatoid uh, fever on a chronic basis uh, went off on another expedition and promptly died. And then that opened her up to a long uh, series of protracted battles with Kent's, or sorry, Kane's family, uh, seeking the legacy that uh, he had promised her. And of course, they uh, wanted to deny her entire existence, uh, let alone the fact that they would have to uh, pay her his money. And this uh, also dovetailed into a 
lifelong uh, battle with alcoholism, with which her uh, sister uh, Kate also uh, uh, struggled with. And uh, at one point, uh, and she was extremely conflicted too about her spiritualism. And uh, uh, finally, she uh, wrote a, a book recanting the entire thing and telling the story of how it was a fraud, uh, which did not go very di well uh, with her uh, sister Leah or her other sister Kate, who are both still uh, practicing uh, spiritualism. And uh, after that, she discovered that uh, being a debunker uh, did not particularly pay. Yeah, it turns out. Yes. Uh, and uh, so she uh, wound up going back into it, and she didn't quite unrecant so much as perform later under uh, sort of the Kreskin-like disclaimer, uh, which says that uh, uh, this is a performance and uh, and Margaret Fox makes no particular claims one way or the other as to whether she's communicating with the spirit world. So what do you make of the, the irony of this essentially... Uh, joke that got out of hand, uh, forming a social movement and a, a spiritual movement that continues today. Um, I, I think that it's, I mean, in the one hand, I mean, when you look at uh, the way that especially uh, spiritism worked in Bra works in Brazil, where it is a, 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 much like Pentecostalism is becoming in Brazil, it's very much a religion for people who are not part of upper crust Brazilian society. Uh, in many cases, because they're aspirational middle class people, not uh, desperately poor urban dwellers, but that they are, that they're able to sort of construct their own, uh, their, their own, uh, spiritual space, uh, without reference to the, to the society at large. Just, you know, my, my sort of rebel instincts approve of that while of course my high church Presbyterianism, uh, tisks, tisks, uh, uh, sadly, I, I think that, um, the, the Fox sisters, as opposed to say, um, you know, a, a, a you know, Carney Barker like um, uh, uh, Anton Lavey or a or a, or a, a cheap thug like uh, Alistair Crowley. I I think that they sort of you know it, it, it it's it, it's almost more novelistic than it is um uh, 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 um uh, uh, like a sideshow, which is how I prefer my occultism to be uh, in in general. Although the the notion that you know an entire world religion comes out of uh, a, a young girl's deformed foot or or not so much deformed as um, her, her remarkably agile uh, ventriloquistic foot. Yeah, um, uh, I, I think that there's that there's aspects of, of of that that are are certainly poignant and perhaps even you know if if done up by a by a properly uh, skeptical uh, esthete could make a lovely New Yorker article. I don't know that I particularly think that um, that that. I, I think maybe the thing that, that spiritualism says to me is that it's important to uh, to sort of take a, a a bigger view of of a lot of these things because, like you say, the, the sad career of of of, of Margaret uh, is 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 a little bit of a bummer uh, as opposed to uh, people who deserve to die uh, in poverty. And it's not as if she invented the idea of talking with the spirits of the dead. No, and so. If you are a believing spiritualist, you can account for this uh, being a prank on some level uh, with different levels of uh, rationalization. I, I, yeah, so I, I think that um, when, I, when I look at, at what, um, what spiritualism is, has, has accomplished, and in, in, I guess in many cases what it has prevented from being accomplished, and that it got in the way of Arthur Conan Doyle writing any more uh, uh, terrible novels that weren't about Sherlock Holmes, so good for him. Um, the, uh, 
I, I think that when I look at it, it's, it seems to me to be, you know, almost like the, the invention of breakfast cereal, which also came out of that same sort of commune movement, although in this case it came out of uh, Michigan, not upstate New York, but it's the same uh, social uh, frac- uh, the, the social um, uh, construct. When you go back and you look at the, at the career of Mr. Graham and Mr. Kellogg and all the weird, freaky misbehavior and troublesome uh, human existence that they that they were prone to, with uh, lots of uh, sleeping around and and you know uh, a febophilia at best uh, going on in their immediate family circles. Um, but you know the end result is cornflakes, and who doesn't love cornflakes? And one thing that the Fox sisters uh, never got up to was the more outlandish bits of theatricality surrounding seance events. So they they were not levitating. Uh, tables. Uh, ectoplasm, of course, was a later development. But uh, Mm -hmm. my favorite, uh, it used to be, until I read this book, that my favorite uh, manifestation of the other world was ectoplasm, and that uh, creates a question of where did ectoplasm suddenly go away? You know, why, if these things are real, why why did ectoplasm only be a thing for a generation? But my favorite new thing uh, was uh, in the case of the uh, Reverend Elakiam Phelps and his son Austin of Stratford, Connecticut, uh, who uh, uh, claimed to be tormented by uh, a boisterous nocturnal ghost, but somehow fortuitously managed to turn around his power into a nice science business. And uh, one of the things that this uh, ghost would do is uh, it would inscribe cold turnips with hieroglyphic writings that dropped from the ceiling. See, there you go. That's pretty great. So I have to say that that is a, an underrated form of spirit communication, which uh, perhaps we could uh, bring back with a variety of different vegetables. We could have... Uh, I, I think that you can have a real crossover between uh, table seance and the slow food movement. Yes, we could have cuneiform on okra. Yeah, where, you know, your, uh, your artisanal locally sourced um, uh, arugula drifts down from the ceiling with messages from your dead loved ones. Indeed. So uh, this is a... Uh, and I have to agree that sort of the... Maggie Fox as a as a character for fiction is sort of more in the realm of literary fiction because it would be very uh, odd uh, to uh, use the usual device of the charlatan who encounters something that is really supernatural because that would sort of I think undercut the the real tragedy of of her life and would sort of uh, uh, trivialize that uh, and uh, it is you know an interesting uh, question though as to uh, look at the history of, of spiritualism and the uh, political uh, results of it and uh, see that it all started with uh, a couple of uh, uh, girls who uh, were prone to alcoholism because their father was prone to alcoholism, uh, who were essentially just uh, bored in an isolated Rochester uh, farmhouse and uh, created this movement that exists to this day. Yeah, I, I should also mention of the things that spiritualism brought us brought to us. It was very influential in the early peace movement in um, the uh, industrial uh, world. The, the notion that you know we were talking to the people who were killed in World War One, and they say don't have any more wars, and and so that's that's another sort of an approach, much like how Theosophy produces not just nasty old um, uh, Hitlerian Darwinism, but it also produces you know Gandhi's independence movement and the notion that India is a giant important country and shouldn't be ruled by a tiny fly speck of an island uh, called variously England or Britain. Right, and that's an interesting example of, you know, it's a, you just can't be an ordinary person looking at 
World War One and concluding that you shouldn't do that anymore. You're going to have to have some sort of uh, other authority to uh, uh, cover you from the charge of uh, limp-wristedness. But if you can uh, have actual uh, spirits uh, who were there tell you that, well, that's a whole different bag of bananas. I think my, I think my favorite spirit communication is uh, one when I was in uh, York, uh, England. They have a uh, a gift shop in the York uh, Minster or in uh, one of the York uh, various buildings. It may not be in the Minster. It may have been in one of the castles that I was at. But the gift shop sells books about Richard III, who was very, very popular in York. And it's sort of a center of uh, the Ricardian heresy of him being, you know, uh, badly done by by history, uh, which is, I guess, a topic for a different hut sometime. But one of the books that it has is the spiritual communication of Richard III with an Anglican parson who drew out of him a full disquisition of the fate of the princes in the tower. And from beyond the grave, Richard III uh, proclaimed his innocence. And this book was sold to me with all the other Ricardian books proclaiming Richard III's innocence. Whereas my immediate response is, guilty or innocent, that's exactly what Richard III is going to say. Exactly. You haven't really cleared anything up with this. <laughs> and I'm, I was happy to buy the book so that I would know what it is that Richard III said. But I'm, I'm afraid that I can't really take it as, um, uh, as unbiased testimony. Even if we can recall people from beyond the grave, they may be unreliable. They may be trying to put one over on us. Well, with that note of warning, I think we've uh, uh, successfully uh, covered the uh, fascinating uh, yet somewhat sad uh, story of Maggie Fox and the movement she spawned. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Contact us through the ectoplasmic veil at kennerobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. 